fairy tales, children's stories about magical and imaginary beings and lands, often the first lens we give young minds to view the world they live in. Many assume these are fictional stories to be taken lightly, but what if there is more to them? This is a podcast where we'll tell you some myths and tales that you thought you knew, and we'll show you how they are connected to real-life crimes today. This is Scary Tales, where the stories of your childhood meet real-life horror. We'll discuss how the light and happy tales of youth actually have a darker history to them. We'll also discuss true crime today and some of the eerie connections they have to the myths and legends of yesterday. Tune in for a new tale every other Tuesday. You can find us on Spotify, Apple, and anywhere you stream your podcast. Welcome back to Scary Tales this week. It's your girl, Lacey. Your boy, Chase. And your other boy, Cody. Cody. What's up? Also known as Boz. Bosley. That's true. Bosley Dakota. Yeah. Uh, Cody is Chase and I's best friend. And he, the really the only reason Chase is on the podcast this week is to be a moderator because if Cody and I were to come on here and do it ourselves, we would never get to the point. There would be a lot of singing that no had nothing to, to do with the story. And it would be a blast. It would honestly be a blast. 100%. Uh, if you want to look Cody up, his Instagram is by Beham, B-U-Y-B-H-M. That's He's it. a realtor here in Alabama. He's the best one. And so if you need a house. Hit me up. Hit him up. But anyways, today he's not here to sell houses. He's here to talk to you about a Bigfoot. Dum, dum, dum. I figured this would be a good one for the boys to do because they go camping a lot. And I, I don't know. I figured they know about Bigfoot things. So anyway, I think they're going to take it away and then I'll bring you a true crime story. Sounds good. So a creature that goes by many names, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, Abominable Snowman, Yeti. Every part of the world has a different name for this legendary wild man figure as he's called but before we get into the history and the theories i'd like to know y'all's thoughts real myth unsure um what do you think um i'm gonna say like most things on this podcast i don't know i would say no but i'm gonna leave it open to the fact that they haven't proved that he doesn't exist so and to your point i would say you're 100 percent incorrect and he is for sure real Oh, um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they uh, find they find new animals all the time. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean it's not they're not like huge monster monkey things, but you know. But you never know. It could be. Could be. I'm a little bit skeptical. I don't think that it's impossible in the sense that you know, it could be, but there's I don't want to say no evidence, but I feel like most of the quote-unquote evidence that most people present is questionable that you could poke some holes in it. So here's one thing to ask too, though, is if he did or does exist, he can't live forever. So what if he you know, has already passed away? Mm. Or does well, he have a whole family? There, there are whole families of them, people uh, say. A Mrs. Bigfoot? Okay. Yeah. Especially when we'll talk about the one in the video that y'all, I let y'all watch earlier of the most famous thing that we're going to talk about. That one, she has some boobs. Wow. That one on there, Mrs. Bigfoot. Wow. I think they call her Patty. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, continuing on. Okay, so despite the many different names, the story usually involves a large, hairy, man-like figure that lurks in the wilderness. They're elusive and thus rarely seen, though some wilderness travelers claim to have smelled their stench or heard their screams and whistles. I can imagine y'all. That's just you boys out in the woods. That's just us. Hadn't showered in a few days. Yeah. That, that is us. Mm-hmm. Thomas got a good beard going. That's right. <laughs> Old Sasquatch. 
The term Sasquatch is the most common name for this legendary being, derived from the Halkamellum dialectal word Sesquak, meaning wild man, which is what they call Cody in high school. That's true. The word was first used by the Coast Salish people. These indigenous peoples inhabited the Pacific Northwest and parts of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, two regions that have yielded more recorded Sasquatch sightings than anywhere else. So Bigfoot is the most common shorthand term used for Sasquatch, and it's generally attributed to the mountains western region of North America and was first popularized back in 1958. A tractor operator by the name of Jerry Crew first popularized the term in 1958 while working in the wilderness. He spotted giant 16-inch footprints in the Doggy. mud. That's how you know it's real. Uh-huh. <laughs> He made a plaster cast of the footprint, which was featured in a local newspaper that first coined the term Bigfoot. So even though he saw it, it wasn't he's not the one that came up with the name. No, but whoever came up with the name, I like how these other countries have like eloquent names like Sasquatch or Yeti, and we're just That's like, right. what do we name it? They got Bigfoot. Name Bigfoot. Sixteen inch foot. Bigfoot. <laughs> there you go. The term has earned considerable recognition since then, particularly in its use by the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, one of the most widely respected groups of quote-unquote Bigfooters. Bigfooters. Unfortunately, this particular story was proven to be a hoax. After Crew's co-worker Ray Wallace died at 84 in 2002, his children revealed a secret Wallace had concealed for decades. He'd made the prints by stomping in the mud with carved wooden feet. It was all quote-unquote just a joke, they Mm. said. And we'll see that a lot of people claim to have found similar large footprints. One such explanation for the large footprints is a phenomenon called overstepping. This is where the longer tracks of an animal's hind feet overlap. It obscures the tracks of the shorter forefeet and even the prints left by nomadic mountain men wearing roughly woven snow sandals. So despite this news, thousands of enthusiasts still believe in the creature and reported sightings are pretty frequent. In America, the Bigfoot Field Researchers Organization, yes, that is a real thing, BFRO, lists more than 5,000 sightings from every state except for Hawaii. That makes sense. Be a little bit difficult to... So Bigfoot can't swim, I guess. Float on down there. Mm -mm. With about one-third coming from the Pacific Northwest, there's some consistency. The oldest sighting is from 986 AD when Leif Erikson was on one of his uh, first trips to the New World. During their first landing in the New World, the Norsemen wrote about man-like beasts that were, quote, horribly ugly, hairy, swarthy, and with great black eyes. Among his accounts, Leif told of seeing huge hairy men who towered over him and his men. The huge hairy men, according to Leif, lived in the woods and had a rank odor and a deafening shriek. You know, I would say that's just because it's 986 AD. (laughs) And you could just go down the street to Talladega or something and see the same thing. That's right, that's gotta be par for the course. Arguably the most famous and influential Bigfoot footage is the 1967 film shot by Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin in North California. And we just watched this. And we just watched it. I let them see it. And that's that's why you know he's 100% real. Right. Absolutely. You can't make that up. Uh So what are your thoughts on the video? Um... I can't tell in the video if they're... If it looks fake because they're trying to, like, spotlight and track it across the camera... That's what I was noticing, like the little ring around it. Oh almost. no, that yeah. was, the ring around it was because that was a stable, a stabilized video. It's oh, normally okay. faster and shaky. Yeah, I just feel like with a lot of quote unquote evidence, it's always looks like somebody took a photo on their like razor flip phone from two thousand one. 
That's true. Yeah. With like UFOs and aliens and all now, that. Now kind of I stuff. will say this: it was 1967, right? So you're not. That's not shot in 1080p. Sure. So what are we talking about? Let the people know. I'll post the link online. But Cody, tell us about the video. Okay. So Bob and Roger were small town cowboys who, in the fall of 1967, decided to go hunting for this creature that no one had yet caught on film. So once they reached Bluff Creek. Half a day's ride from the nearest civilization, Roger took out his 16 millimeter Kodak camera to take a video of the area. See, that wasn't an iPhone. Mm-hmm. That makes a, that little hey, that helps. A little valid there now. Yeah. So the horses saw it first. Patterson's horse reared, kicking and protesting. Then Gimlin's, less than 100 feet away, and the men saw why a hulking gorilla-like figure covered in dark hair hurried on two legs across the creek bed. Its sloped head and torso were pushed forward, its upper back hunched, thigh muscles rippling, I can relate, (laughs) (laughs) long arms swinging, and breasts exposed. That's what I was trying to say. We'll post pictures of the video they're talking about. This thing has sizable boobs, breasts. Yeah, Yeah. so you don't expect that. Yeah. Patterson was able to steady his horse long enough to capture the creature in mid-stride as it looked over its right shoulder. It was only a glance before it disappeared into the forest, leaving behind a skunky, rank odor. Mm. I do the video. It's so casually, you know, the part of the office where he's like, so smug. The bed bugs. The, the bed, bed bugs. Yes. That's how the, the the Bigfoot's walking in the video. Yeah. Yeah, he just not, looks at him, not concerned at all, walk, turns back around, keeps walking. So here's where my skeptic alarm starts to go off. Nobody prior to them had been able to capture this thing on film. They decide that they're going to set out to do this, and it just so happens that they were the ones that were able to film it. Yeah, I think there were other, maybe some videos before that. They weren't as clear, though. Another thing that's throwing me off here is the skunky odor that it left behind. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen an animal out in the wild that leaves behind an odor just walking by. I mean, it's a Bigfoot. Yeah. Yeah, other than like if a skunk sprays, but you know, Mm -hmm. just like in normal stride. Yeah. Stinky. Stinky. Mm-hmm. Bad hygiene. Something stinks. Yeah. yeah. That's a good point. So, of course, the film immediately met criticism and claimed that the men were pranksters and the creature was just a person in a gorilla suit. Patterson himself passed a lie detector test given by a reputable New York City polygraph expert in 1968. He never wavered from his account. Sadly, the film tore Patterson and Gimlin's friendship apart, and they didn't make amends until Patterson was on his deathbed dying of cancer at the young age of 38. Things to consider. Trying to find a costume that lifelike in the 60s would have been very hard to do. Not to mention, these weren't men with a bunch of money, and a costume that realistic would have been very, very expensive. Scientists who compared the creature's height to surrounding trees, etc., came to the conclusion that the creature was about seven feet tall. So this means that if it were a person in a costume, it would be one very tall person. And to this day, the Patterson-Gimlin film remains one of the most scrutinized recordings in modern American history, with experts of all stripes failing to debunk it entirely. Like we said in the beginning, the legends of a wild man are not unique to North America alone. The Yeti is a character in ancient legends and folklore of the Himalayan people. It dates back to the times of Alexander the Great, who demanded to see a Yeti when he conquered the Indus Valley in 326 BC. But... According to National Geographic, local people told him they were unable to present one because the creatures could not survive at that low an altitude. So nice save on their part. Yeah. I just imagine Alexander the Great rolling up 
on his horse and being like, I demand to see a Yeti. <laughs> they're like, You're not great. Sorry. And then they just came up with that excuse on the fly. They're said to be, the Yetis um, are said to be eight to 12 feet tall and can weigh as much as 800 pounds. Mm-hmm. In most of the tales, the Yeti is a figure of danger. The moral of the stories is often a warning to avoid dangerous wild animals and to stay close and safe within the community, very similar to last week when y'all were talking about La Llorona, uh, which was made to keep children away from water, which I think a lot of the stories that we probably cover, there's some sort of lesson to be learned, some sort of metaphor that shapes culture and behavior. Mm-hmm. Parents scaring children, just mm-hmm. your standard basic yeah. Just your tools. standard big yeah. monster living in the woods you know. gonna eat you. Yeah. Or, you know, Because wandering in the woods is generally not the safest thing to do. So if there's a Yeti out there, your five-year-old won't go exploring. The name Abominable Snowman was originally a translation error and you could imagine so. Who can say the word abominable? I can't say it. That's why I get abominable. 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 Can you say that? Abominable. Abominable. Abominatable. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Guys, it's the Afghanistan nannies. Yeah. So the abominable snowman. A journalist named Henry Newman was working in Calcutta in the 1920s when he first heard reports of a wild man on the slopes of the Himalayas from members of a British expedition group that was climbing Mount Everest. Um, starting to sound more and more like the Disney World experience. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Sherpas, which were people of the Himalayas that are experts at mountaineering, still are, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. On this expedition, were said to have discovered footprints that they believe belonged to the wild man of the snows, and word quickly spread throughout the region. Isn't Sherpa also a name for a rug or some sort of style? I think it's a like type of fabric. Yeah. Sherpa's yeah. real big right now. You yeah. just look like your couch is made of sheep. Yeah. You put that in the mm-hmm. collar of a jacket, I'm buying it every day. Right. <laughs> So journalist Newman heard such reports, but misinterpreted the Tibetan term meta kangimi, which means man-like wild creature. Newman got the snowman part correct, but mistranslated the word wild to mean filthy or dirty, i.e. abomination. You hate to see it. Mm. The word abomination, which means a thing that causes disgust or hatred, is an affront to the ways humans understand the world. Because most humans can organize anything in life as clean or unclean, but an abomination pushes that boundary and makes us question the way we see the world, which you see this all throughout, you know, religious texts mm-hmm. and things like that as well. Unlike the Loch Ness monster of the chupacabra or the chupacabra, this wild man being straddles the line between human and animal, hitting a little bit closer to home. You know, it's interesting to me that the word abominable is only in relation to this creature. The snowman. Like you don't hear it. I, I, you know, I know you can use yeah. it in other ways, but nobody practically does. Mm-hmm. Like the abominable Taliban? Like, yes. Something like that? I, I Yes. My dinner last night was a abomination. <laughs> it was a trash. <laughs> you know? Unclean. Similar to other legends, such as this one, there's little evidence besides eyewitness testimony to prove the existence of a wild man. We'll discuss a few of the famous sightings here. Mm. Give it to me. All right. So in 2007... American TV show host Josh Gates claimed he found three mysterious footprints in snow near a stream in the Himalayas. Locals were skeptical, suggesting that Gates, who had only been in the area for about a week, simply misinterpreted a bear track. Nothing more was learned about what made the print, and the track can now be found not in a natural history museum, 
but instead in a small display at Walt Disney World. Seen it. There's your Disney. The Mount Everest ride, you go through a little bitty museum type thing before you get on the ride, and um, that's we've seen it. Wow. Also, I feel like that's his first mistake is being an American, walking up in the Himalayas, acting like he knows everything, and then within a week you find a footprint. Too soon. you got to give it time. Yeah, you're getting on a plane heading straight back home. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Also, one of the best rides at Disney World, undoubtedly. Facts. True. So in 2010, hunters in China caught a strange animal that they claimed was a yeti. This mysterious, hairless, four-legged animal was initially described as having features resembling a bear, but was finally identified as a civet, a small cat-like animal that had lost its hair from disease. That one confuses me because yeah. I thought they were supposed to be hairy, and I don't yeah, see how... Sounds like uh, Austin Powers. Yeah. Dr. Mm-hmm. Evil's little buddy. Mm-hmm. What's his buddy's name? Oh, it's like Mr. Something. Mr. Winks? No. Pickles? I think that's my neighbor's cat. <laughs> <laughs> it is your neighbor's is cat. My... <laughs> a finger once revered in a monastery in Nepal and long claimed to be from a yeti was examined by researchers at the Edinburgh Zoo in 2011. The finger <laughs> generated controversy among Bigfoot and Yeti believers for decades until DNA analysis proved that the finger was human, perhaps from a monk's corpse. It's of hairy fingers. Yeah, that monk. <laughs> it was like, I dedicate my life to something. But bathing and general... Shaving. Shaving. Yeah. yeah, not one of them. The Russian government also took a look into these Yeti rumors. Of course they did. Yeah. yeah. I feel like they're at the, the core of most conspiracies, but... Mm-hmm. In 2011, they organized a group of Yeti experts in Western Siberia. A biologist by the name of John Bendernagel. Mm. Wouldn't you love to have that name? That's a great name. Mr. Bendernagel? Oh, Bendernagel. Claimed that he found evidence that not only proved the Yeti exists, but that it builds nests and shelters out of twisted tree branches. The group made headlines around the world when they reported that they had indisputable proof and were 95% sure the Yeti existed based off of some gray hairs Found in a clump of moss in a cave. You're, just, tell, you're telling me that's all it took? Some gray hair, and now you're like 95%. That's what I'm saying. There's in. a lot of people that just find these hairs, and what? And they're just like, yep. Yeah, yeti. I, I find hair Bigfoot. all the time on me. Mm-hmm. Yep. You're going to have some. Bigfoot in my house. Yep. I also want to say, like, indisputable is a pretty strong descriptor to associate with 95%. That's true. It's mm-hmm. got to be 100. It's like, <laughs> I mean, or at least 99 point something. Yeah. Well, I mean, you've got 5% where I can sit there and dispute it. <laughs> you know? Facts. The Russians don't think Russian about that kind you. of stuff. Yeah. Classic yeah. Russians. However, other scientists who participated in the same expedition were not as impressed. Jeff Meldrum, a professor of anatomy and anthropologist at Idaho State University, who, by the way, believes in the existence of Bigfoot, said that he believed this reporting was a hoax. He said that the twisted tree branches used to make the nest clearly had tool-made cuts in the wood. He's like, listen here, Bender Nagel. <laughs> I'm on to you. I, I'm right. one of the 5%, and I'm taking you down. I see where you used a Dremel. In the 1950s, the Himalayan government took advantage of the Yeti craze and were charging 400 pounds for Yeti hunting licenses. Get your coin. Wow. Mm-hmm. What a license. I want to get one of those. Yeah. They were like, we're going to sell a bunch of these for something oh, yeah. that doesn't exist. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's my next business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Create a fake monster, yep. sell everything I can. Yep. On to what the DNA says. So in 2013, Oxford geneticist Brian Sykes put out a call to all Yeti believers and institutions around the world asking for samples of hair, teeth, or tissue taken from a sighting to be submitted with a plan to compare the DNA to other animals stored in the database. He's like, let's look at the facts, Mm y'all. 
In total, they received 57 hair samples from supposed Yeti sightings, and the results were, you want to take some guesses as to what just it actually every, was? A house cat, common house cats. Yep, in the cave, just yeah. house cats mm-hmm. chilling. Right. Okay. So two of the samples were not even hair. Six <laughs> That's concerning. <laughs> Six of them were black bear, four were canids, four were cows, two were brown bear, four horses, one deer, one North American porcupine. Por- First of all, porcupine is just going to be a sharp needle. Yeah. yeah. One sheep, one Malaysian taper, one Soro, one human, two raccoons. And a partridge <laughs> in a pear tree on uh, the first day. Two of the samples returned strange matches. Both samples, these were the sample numbers, 25025 and 25191. Just in case you want to look it in up. In case, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Fact check. Were 100% matches to DNA recovered from a Pleistocene polar bear, species Ursus maritumus, that lived more than 40,000 years ago on Svalbard. So no Bigfoot, but that's still pretty cool. Yeah, that is yeah. Cool. Like, cool that they discovered. How'd you come across that? Mm-hmm. So under the assumption that these Bigfoot, Yeti, Sasquatch creatures are real, what are they? So there are a few theories as to what they actually are. So number one, Bigfoot is just a feral human. Imagine a hermit living in the woods for 10 plus years. They'd go a little crazy. They'd be explaining the hairiness. Yeah. yeah, that's true. But most humans don't grow hair all over their body. I've seen a I couple mean, guys. Um, I've seen Cody yeah. before. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not that guy. Cody's anti-Yeti. Unless they have uh, what's called hypertrichosis. But what are the chances of there being not only a hermit, but somebody a hermit that also has a super rare condition that also is able to survive in the wilderness. So Texas veterinarian Melba Ketchum claimed that last November or claimed last November to have proved via a Sasquatch DNA sample that the legendary apes are partially human. She even went so far as to insist that the government recognize them as quote an indigenous people and immediately protect their human and constitutional rights. However, none of her research has been peer reviewed. No surprise there. Wow. That's the day and age we live in. Yeah, we want to be advocates for a species we cannot prove exists. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, number two. Bigfoot is remnant of an ancient ape known as Gigantopithecus. Gigantopithecus. That one. You're talking about Gigantopithecus? (laughs) Yeah, old Giganto. Oh, yeah. Gig. The fossil record shows them appearing about 2 million years ago, up to as recently as 100,000 years ago, living alongside humans for tens of thousands of years. Not a lot of fossils of Big G have been found, (laughs) mostly parts of the jawbone, but based on the size of the jawbone that was found, it is likely that this gigantic thing, Gigantopithecus, that guy, was Bigfoot sized. So so maybe he's just, there's a few hanging around. Believable to me. Yes, but I don't remember the exact science on it, but for a species to remain in existence and procreate with enough like genetic diversity, you couldn't just have a few a few left over that happened to stick. You don't around. know. Yeah, you don't know. You There'd don't have know. to be a decent it out. population to Okay, anyway. Number three, Bigfoot is really an alien. Wait, hold on right here. So we got one people, group of people that are like, yes, indigenous people, let's make a holiday around Bigfoot. Mm-hmm. And then somebody else is like, no, nah, alien, 100%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Y'all seen signs? Okay. okay. They were like, let's just combine the two biggest conspiracy theories ever. Yep. 
I like that. Why not? Uh-huh. So on the alien track, a lot of Bigfoot hunters report run-ins with what are known as orange orbs. These are fast-moving lights that one may think are alien in nature. More specifically, these orange lights could be transporter beams or lights from a portal into another universe. This would explain the question most skeptics have. If Bigfoot is real, where are the bodies? Why are there no carcasses left behind? And it's because they've been zapped away by the aliens. Mm-hmm. Okay, they so beamed them up. We need to make a movie around this. Yeah. yeah. Combine Interstellar with Bigfoot. Right. I'm watching that all day. Mm-hmm. I don't think that exists. I've watched a lot of those movies, and I've never seen that combination of sci-fi. I know. Mm-hmm. Well, you there just you released go. it into the universe. So. Million dollar idea. Mm-hmm. You if heard it, it here first. If it exists, y'all send us a link on Instagram or something. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Number four. Bigfoot is a descendant of the Nephilim from the Bible. Nephilim, if you didn't know, they are the descendants of an angel and a human who, well, you know, got together, had relations. Bumping uglies. Bumping uglies. <laughs> this idea comes from Genesis 6-4, which states, There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God, or fallen angels, came in unto the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. The same became mighty men, which were of old, men of renown. So this would explain the general size, the intelligence, the supernatural component of Bigfoot. And in the book of Enoch, uh, one of the books that was removed from the traditional canon that most Christians have today, it says that these fallen angels also mated with other animals, which could explain the hairiness. Uh, A lot of people believe that the book of Enoch was removed by the church because it spoke too much about these creatures. And that is a really interesting rabbit hole to go down if you are interested in the Bible and history and what those what that Nephilim could have potentially been. Mm-hmm. Um, but my question there is like, in order to procreate, you've got to have DNA. And mm-hmm. so if you are a spiritual being, i.e. not a physical being, how are you going to mate with humans that would then mate with animals that there's not genetic compatibility with? I think that one's a little far-fetched. Uh, yeah, I one, think it's more likely that that's aliens. That's what I'm saying, Gigantopithecus. Yeah, I'm going with the aliens before I go with that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 100%. Team Gigantopithecus over here. Yeah. So despite lack of actual evidence, hardcore fans of Bigfoot, Yeti, etc., are not deterred from believing the elusive creature still exists. No one has definitely proven that it doesn't, which leaves the possibility open. That's what and, I'm saying. Uh, yeah. And after all... The Sherpa legend holds that the Yeti will only show itself to those who believe in it. Like, like Tinkerbell, right? Just mm-hmm. like Tinkerbell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you stand in front of the mirror and, and say, um, what was the one? Bloody Mary. Bloody Mary. Mm-hmm. The oh, lights yeah. off. Yeah. But, the, but I don't enjoy the, you can't prove it doesn't exist, so we can't rule it out argument. Because well, well, I could say that about anything. Yeah. That's true. Also, the it'll only show itself to people who believe. That's just like... You're just seeing stuff. You're just asking for it. Yeah. You're, you're pri- just, priming mm-hmm. your brain for a little experience. Exactly. Well, a lot of people say because every country has its own version of Bigfoot, that that demonstrates that he's real. Mm. I've heard people say that, but it's also like there's a different version of Santa Claus in every country. And I was going to say he doesn't exist, but I'm sure it's Christmas time. So hold on. What is on the office? What is Dwight's version of Santa Claus? <laughs> Belschnickel. Belschnickel. <laughs> there you go. But why do we as humans as a whole, want so badly for Bigfoot to be real. Because that would be incredible. I, I want to know. I want Hogwarts to be real. And Hogwarts yeah. is real in my mind. Same. Mm-hmm. Because you believe in it. Yeah. And that, it only reveals itself. <laughs> yeah. Like the room of requirement. That's yeah. right. 
you can walk right through platform nine and three quarters mm-hmm. and board the train. Nature writer Robert Michael Pyle studied Bigfoot enthusiast and concluded their obsession gives them a good excuse to spend time in remote wooded areas. Others frame Bigfoot as a symbol of freedom from the modern world, a simple creature who is free of civilization's rules and boundaries. And folklore professor Lynn McNeil says Bigfoot satisfies a deep human hunger for the mysterious and the magical and serves as proof that humans have not totally dominated nature. She said, it's a better world if Bigfoot can be real. It says something positive about our retention of wilderness spaces. It says something positive about the fact that we maybe aren't utterly destroying the planet we live on if a species can remain hidden and undiscovered. I do I do like the part about the hunger for the mysterious and the magical because I think that at the core of most people's souls is some desire for something bigger than themselves. And I think a lot of times that gets applied in a healthy direction. And sometimes people become obsessed with conspiracy theories. But True. ultimately, like maintaining wonder, I think, is a great theme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a whole show. I forget what channel it's on called Finding Bigfoot. And they dedicate and they, it's been on for many seasons and they never found Bigfoot. Yeah. But, but people are still interested. There, it's a um, there's a marketing component, too. We got the Yeti coolers. Mm. Oh, yeah. They're big. They're not hairy, but they they keep you cold. They're heavy, mm-hmm. and they're True. they're expensive and not super practical. Indestructible, right. mm-hmm. indestructible. There you go. And I'll buy three of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're ab- they're abominable. Some might say. Is mm. if they if they if the white one is not called abominable white, mm-hmm. they're missing. They definitely are. That's an opportunity. Yeah. Well, all right. Thanks, guys. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. Ready well, to- you're sticking around to hear about the true crime. I'm still just so happy to be here. <laughs> <laughs> And we'll see you guys after the break. Bye-bye. Cody, you got to say bye-bye. That's what we always do. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Because <laughs> I got to get to the microphone. Cody's knee is on my knee. Bumpin' knees. Bumpin' knees. Bumpin' knees. Did you know babies are born without knees? No. That's a fact. (laughs) That explains a lot, actually. (laughs) Okay, welcome back to the part of the show where I tell you about a true crime story. That light. Do you see that? That's nice. That is warm and bright and... You're about to stairway to heaven. Blinding me. And uh, Cody and I are sharing a microphone. Hello. Hey, how's it going? Do what you've been doing. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Um, I'm not really. I'm not really sure why you're on my microphone and not Chase's. Cause it's just you know, I gotta switch it up. Yeah. Well, today I'm yeah, every week, Cody. Since you're new to this, okay. I find a true crime that deals with the legend or fairy tale or whatever you you told in the first part. So when I was trying to find one, you were so close to me. <laughs> When it's I was, probably because he's getting scared. When I was trying to find one for this week, the one that would have done best with this episode would have been the Dyatlov Pass incident, which we've already covered. Um, you you don't know anything about that. You should probably listen to the podcast. I've but, actually written a book about it, but you know, oh, whatever. Yeah. So I found what could be second best. So I started looking for murders in the wilderness because the yeti and the bigfoot he lives they live in the wilderness in the wilderness my eyes are being roasted right now stand by i got you okay 
In 2019, the National Park Service released a statement saying that there is an average of six deaths each week within the national park system. That's approximately, boys, 312 deaths per year. I'm saying this to you because every year Chase and Cody and the boys go on a camping trip. Well, pause, though. If we're going to quote deaths, when, mm-hmm. for example, when we went to Yellowstone. Mm-hmm. I'm getting to that. Don't ruin me. Don't, okay. Yeah. I'm just sure. saying, most sure. of them are not by animals. Right. Do not ruin her. Okay. Mm-hmm. Lake like. Mean. Have y'all ever been there? Lake Mean? Lake Mean? No. Yeah. Never heard of it. Yosemite? Been there? And the Grand Canyon National Parks recorded the, the most deaths from a study spanning 2007 to 2018. But North Cascades National Park in Washington registered the highest death rate. It is by far the next deadliest park with 65.2 deaths for every 1 million visitors. That's 65 times higher than the park system average, which is interesting to note that Washington is one of the places with the highest number of reported Bigfoot sightings. So tie that in there. These deaths can be caused, like Chase was saying, by many things besides wildlife, uh, falling, drowning, getting lost, or today we're going to talk about a little homicide. Oh, my. Mm-hmm. Today we, w- we will be discussing the double murder of Julianne Williams and Laura, also known as Lolly Winans. And First of all, she had it coming with that name. Right. <laughs> Well, their murders are also known as the Shenandoah National Park murders. Go ahead and hit them with it. Oh, yeah. No. Shenandoah River. (laughs) So some history on the girls. Julianne Williams, better known as Julie, was born in St. Cloud, Minnesota, and was quite the athlete. In high school, she won the Minnesota... Hold on real quick. Did you just say athlete? Yeah. Okay, continue. Athlete. In (laughs) high school, she won the Minnesota State Double Tennis Championship. And she also spoke uh, fluent Spanish and graduated summa cum laude. So Didn't we all? <laughs> Cody definitely did. I did not. She always had a love for nature and the outdoors and would go on to study geology at Carlston College in Northfield, Minnesota. I think that's pronounced Carlton College, not Carlson. I'm thinking of straight fresh prints. You are. Also, who's, I imagine people that study geology just going into work. And like sitting down with a pan of rocks and just looking at rocks. They're just pioneers. Yeah. Yeah. What do geologists actually do? They break open rocks and look inside and they're like, what is this? Mm, all the geologists all out there I can listening. All is like the dig site on Jurassic Park yeah. with the archaeologists. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, say this is ignorant on my part, but I'm a firm believer that every geologist ends up working at DeSoto Caverns at some point. <laughs> mm-hmm. Great place. What's the other? Ruby Falls. Ruby Falls. There you go. Julie's studies eventually led her to move to Greek Macedonia and then Italy to study the extinction of dinosaurs. And I feel like, like you said, Chase, that's the kind of job you only hear about in the movies. Jurassic Park style. You were Jurassic Park for Christmas this year. I sure was. The whole park. The the entire entire park. park. (laughs) It was quite an elaborate (laughs) costume. Yeah. When Julie came back home from her trip to Europe, she took some time off to really think about what she wanted from life. And at that time, Julie was struggling with her sexual orientation and eventually moved to Richmond, Vermont, which was a little city where she felt safe coming out. Julie, she grew up in a Christian household and was confused about her sexual orientation and how this fit into her ideas about God. She did, however, find a church that was LBGTQ plus affirming in this new town of Vermont that she moved into. 
And her and a couple of her girlfriends, they called themselves the church ladies. Oh, isn't that cute? Mm-hmm. Laura Winans, better known as Lolly, was born in Gross Point, Michigan, from very wealthy parents. But despite her fortunate upbringings, Lolly always felt like a misfit and rejected her parents' way of life. She wasn't about that posh, eating caviar on a mm-hmm. yacht, that kind of thing. She moved out as soon as she graduated from high school. And sadly, according to her close friends, Lolly was sexually abused by a trusted man when she was a child. And this childhood trauma led Lolly to have problems with alcohol, and she eventually dropped out of college. So I feel like you have Julie, who's very type A, go get them, and then Lolly, who's kind of just like a free spirit. Some might even call her a lollygagger. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I look over at Cody, he's so close to my face. I know, we're like an inch apart. Um, however, in 1994, after Lolly began therapy, she decided to put her life together, and she moved to Waterville, Maine, where she attended Unity College with the hopes of becoming a wilderness guide. I feel like you would be a great wilderness guide, Cody. That's my dream job. That makes me think of the movie Up, the wilderness explorer, Carl. Yeah, with the bad. Or no, well, what's the little boy's name? It's not Carl. Uh, the little boy's name is... Ryan? Ryan? <laughs> no. It's like Seth. <laughs> no. Actually, it might be Seth. Is it Seth? No. Oh, okay. I Kevin? So. Kevin? No. That's that's Home Alone. No, Kevin's the name of the bird. <laughs> Kevin is the bird. You're exactly right. Right. Moderator, continue. Oh, okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> this, is, this is why, this is, this this is why I'm here. This is the only podcast I'll be on because I'll never get invited back. Um, at this time, she also became engaged to a man, but they broke it off, which is interesting because we, we'll find out later in the story that Lolly is a lesbian. Lolly eventually began an internship at Woods Women, which is, I feel like, something Michael Scott would have come up with. But this was a Minnesota-based outdoor recreation program for women. And this is where she met Julie. And the two instantly felt connected and began a relationship. And it was both of their first times to date another woman. So it's kind of like on, um, I don't, uh, here we go, getting off topic again, when Stanley makes the the um, paper for women and it's pink and it's oh, scented. Yeah. scented. Yeah. yeah, I feel like him and Michael got together and made this conference for wood women. <laughs> also love how every group she's a part of has t- a terrible name. Yeah, she was the church, church ladies, church ladies, and wood women. Yeah, <laughs> or was it woods women or women wo- for wood? Yeah, <laughs> ironically. Anyway, it is said. <laughs> it is said that when they were apart, Winans would stay awake late on her college camping trips, wearing a headlamp and writing Julie's sixteen-page letters. The two women grappled with how and when to be open about their sexual orientation. Lolly, you know, the free spirit, handled it quietly without much conflict, but Julie struggled with when was the right time to tell her parents. As the summer approached, the two women looked forward to living together and found a house inside, inside, (laughs) they found a house in Huntington, Vermont, and in May of 1996, Julie got a new job, so she and Lolly, Lolly. She and Lolly decided to go on a camping trip to celebrate and spend some time together before Julie had to go to work. They decided on the, you tell me if I'm wrong, you say okay. Appalachian or Appalachian? Appalachian, 100%. Oh, I say Appalachian. Well, I think it, either's fine. You're, yeah, you're allowed to do that. Okay. The Appalachian Trail at Shenandoah, go ahead. Shenandoah River uh, National Park in Virginia. The park is 75 miles from Washington, D.C. and covers an area of 197, 411 acres. You boys should hit this up. It's on the list. The girls were expected back home on June 1st because they planned to attend a friend's wedding. So the couple set out on May 19th with their golden retriever, Taj. I'm very jealous. I thought you were about to say Todd. 
Todd. That's horrible Cody's dad name. name. Yeah, but a horrible name for a golden retriever. <laughs> Todd. Well, Copper and Todd. Lolly named her dog Todd. Todd Not a surprise. Copper and Todd from Fox Oh, that's true. Uh, they had pl- planned a meticulous itinerary that would allow them to see one of some of the most spectacular sights on the lower Appalachian Trail. And during their trip, they... Huh? Nothing. <laughs> during their trip, they faced several days of rain. Is that really a bummer when you go camping? Or is it just kind of like roll you, with the punches? You, are you asking if it's a bummer to be in the middle of woods in the pouring down rain with scarce you, resources and limited clothing? Yeah. No, it's a blast. It's actually <laughs> it's, yeah, it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> At one point, they even hitchhiked with a park ranger because they couldn't. They needed somewhere to get out of the rain. They climbed Hawksbill, which is the park's highest peak. You tell me if this is big. It's uh, not. 4,050 feet. It's big, but it's not Yosemite big. That's true. Right. Yeah. Well, and on one of their last nights, they made camp a half mile from Skyline Drive near the Appalachian Trail. They chose a peaceful spot next to the mountain stream, set up their tent, settled down, and were hoping to get a good night's sleep. Dum, dum, dum. Yeah. Skyline Drive is a really popular area of the park. It is a 105 mile miles of scenic routes. Do you say routes or routes? I, you know, I feel like it depends on the sentence. Yeah. Would I you go have back gone with r- routes? There? I would say Route 66, but yeah. I would say What's I'm going to take to a different to, route. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Same. Anyways, 105 miles of scenic routes, routes, trailheads, picnic areas, etc. I imagine just driving up the windy road in Gatlinburg to get to Lookout Mountain. Probably looked a lot like that, actually, because mm-hmm. that's part of the southern part yeah. of the Appalachian. Mm-hmm. So it's not like the girls had set up camp outside of, you know, in the middle of nowhere. On May 31st, hey, hey, hey I was going to see if you knew. Hey. That's my birthday. When Julie's father had not heard from her, he contacted the police to report her and her friend mm. missing. We'll find out later that her, their families did not know that they were gay. The police found the women's car parked at near Skyland Lodge, which is a very popular lodge in the area, lots of people there, and began a search of the nearby trails. As soon as they started searching, they found Taj, their dog, had showed up wandering around alone without a leash, which just breaks my heart. Then sadly, on June 1st, park rangers found the bodies of the young women at their campsite off the trail just a short distance from Skyline Resort. They were found partially undressed, bound and gagged, and their throats had been slit. Lolly was found inside the tent, while Julie's body, along with her sleeping bag and sleeping pad, were found approximately 30 to 40 feet away down an embankment. And there was no sign of sexual assault. There was no sign? No. Which is more terrifying to me when people don't have a motive and they just do it. They just murder for murder's sake. Yeah. Wow. So why did it take so long to find their bodies? Because, I mean, it took more than a day. And they found the dog instantly. The bodies were undiscovered in such a popular part of the park on a busy holiday weekend because one of the backcountry regulations at the time was that backpackers had to camp away from designated trails, fire roads, and developed areas. And actually, that's still the case in a lot of parks. Sure. We, we've experienced that before. Hmm. Yeah. Well, and you would not be immediately suspicious of a tent that happened to have somebody dead in it. Any, if there's any dead person, I'm going to be suspicious. No, I mean, like, if you just happen to be... You'd think they're just sleeping. Yeah. Oh. Or or might not even see them at all. Exactly. I mean, we don't think anything of a tent that we would pass that we didn't see somebody at. Yeah. Yeah. yeah true. Despite it being Memorial Day weekend, the Park Service waited 36 hours after the discovery to announce the murders, even though the park was full of visitors who may have been at risk. And they received a lot of flack for this. But... When the announcement was finally made, acting park superintendent called it an isolated event. That's why he didn't tell anybody else. 
He did that that murderer. He just wanted to murder them, and then he was done. Well, That'd be like if if you had like a shark attack at a beach, and nobody yeah. told anyone to get out of the water. Yeah, mm-hmm. not this situation though. So a couple of things. It's interesting to note that whoever murdered Julian Lolly did not kill their dog. And I feel like if it was a murder for murder's sake type situation, you you would love murdering anything. Well, also, you know, he could have been just a good-hearted murderer. He's like, oh, <laughs> sweet dog. But, mm-hmm. you know, sorry, Lolly. Yeah. <laughs> Soft spot for golden retrievers. Yeah. Also, no nearby witnesses reported hearing a dog barking. So this leads some to believe that the killer had met and befriended the girls and the dog earlier on the trails. And then that, so when he allegedly approached the campsite, the dog didn't bark because he already knew them. But to that, I say he was a golden retriever. Yeah, that's true. They're and not they suspicious or defensive. Love everyone. Mm-hmm. As I said earlier, there were no signs of sexual assault and nothing was really taken from the campsite. So this really just looked like a murder for murder's sake. After the murders, the news that Lolly and Julie were lovers broke out, leaving both of their families shocked since they had no idea that their daughters were lesbians. The LBGTQ plus community was left in shock as well. And the Vermont Coalition for Lesbian and Gay Rights recognized the killings as a hate crime. That's one of the possible theories. Soon after the discovery of the bodies, FBI joined the local police department and the park rangers in the investigation. They found the the girl's camera and were able to trace their steps and came to the conclusion that the girls were last seen alive on May 24th. And then they found them dead May 31st. So there's that time span. But it wasn't the first time that a murder took place in the Appalachian Trail. Julie and Lolly's murders were actually the eighth and ninth that occurred there. Investigators did find parallels to the women's murder with that of a decade-old Eastern Virginia case involving two lesbians. In October 1986, Rebecca Dowski and Kathleen Thomas were found dead in a car that had been pushed off an embankment near Williamsburg. Their throats were also slashed by a sharp object, their wrists had been bound, and there was no sign of a struggle. Also, their wallets and purses were left in the car, ruling out a robbery motive. So the only thing I say to that is that's 10 years apart, so to compare the two, or kind of say that the, the same person who killed Lolly and Julie killed these people is a little bit of a stretch to me. Seems like a stretch, but if that was a repeat offender mm-hmm. and he did, in a similar situation, kill somebody else in that 10-year span, where he's doing these types of murders wouldn't necessarily mean that they would be found or discovered in True that 10 years. True facts. Mm-hmm. That's why we yeah. keep him around, that, Cody. That is exactly why he's here. Uh-huh. Despite the similarities, the FBI never found actual evidence that could link these cases. And shortly after the discovery of the bodies, FBI offered a $25,000 reward for any information. Authorities confirmed that these murders could have been motivated by the sexual orientations of the victims, but they were pursuing motives of all kinds. Wait, hold on. We're saying $25,000 reward for any information? Yeah. I'm calling the cops and I'm like, hey, they were in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> Where's my money? Send a check payable yeah. to Cody. Well, that Park. led them to something greater. That hey, that that that'll help. I feel like when talking about motives, like you can speculate, but until you have any real like evidence or suspect, it's almost impossible to say. Which makes it the most dangerous type of killer, like to not mm-hmm. have a, like the most likely crime murder that you could get away with would be to for it to be completely random mm-hmm. and to be completely unconnected to you from relationship standpoint or. Yeah. Where you live or whatever. Yeah. Then in July of 1997, another crime shocked the Shenandoah National Park. Shenandoah. <laughs> I keep missing my cue on that. Uh, a Canadian tourist, Yvonne Malbasha, was on her bike. She had actually been bike riding with a friend and they separated, um, accidentally separated. 
and she was driving along Shenandoah Skyline Drive when a man driving a truck forced her off the bike and tried to get her into his vehicle. All the while, he was screaming sexual profanities at her. He threw like a Coke bottle at her. But thankfully, Yvonne was able to fight him off and she hid behind a tree and not able to find her. The man drove away, but the park rangers caught him as he was trying to leave the national park. Eerily, in that man's car, they also found hand and leg restraints. So, and Lolly and Julie had been restrained. The attacker was a man in his late 20s named Daryl David Rice, and he had no previous criminal records. I actually graduated high school with a David Rice. Shout out. Haven't talked to you in like 15 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hope you're listening. And not killing people. And not killing people. Uh, Rice was in his late 20s at the time and living in Columbia, Maryland. He was single, no children. Although he had no previous pr- criminal record, Rice was fired from his job at Maryland's MCI System House in June 1997 because he was extremely hostile at work. His former co-workers told investigators that he yelled sexual and other profanities at them. He once punched a hole in the wall of the men's bathroom. He's, uh, I mean, Who he could have just been though? having ha- a real yeah. painful BM. Yeah, yeah. We've all been there. We've all been He stole other people's lunches. He bumped into them so that they would spill their coffee. <laughs> Hold on. Stole people's lunches? <laughs> Give me that PBJ. What? How, do you, how does that even happen? I don't know. He would purposely bump into them so they would spill coffee on themselves. <laughs> and he even took one woman's picture down and threw it in the trash. This guy is four years old. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. In 1998, Rice pleaded guilty to the attempted abduction of Yvonne Melbasha and was sentenced to 135 months in prison. Just talk about how many years that is. Who says 135 months? Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. like women that... Say like, their baby's like... My yeah. baby's 49 months. I'm yeah. like, no, dude. You no, it's like a four-year-old. Four-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> Interviews after his arrest led prosecutors to believe Rice may have been involved with Julian Lawley's murders. He became a possible suspect for a variety of reasons, including the geographic location, his predatory behavior, and his exclusive selection of female victims. So videos also showed Rice entering the park at Front Royal at 8.05 p.m. on May 25th, and again at Rockfish Gap at 4.57 p.m. on May 26th. That's that's super sus, because remember, the last time they were seen was May 24th, and then they found the bodies May 31st. He returned with his friends, Carl and Robert Ruckert, on June 1st, and Rice denied that he was in the park on May 25th and May 26th, but admitted he was there on June 1st. So they called him in a lie there. With the circumstantial evidence on April 10th, 2001, Attorney General John Ashcroft announced the indictment of Daryl David Rice in the murder of Julie and Lolly. In a news conference announcing Rice's indictment, prosecutors alleged that, quote, Rice had stayed on several, stated on several occasions that he enjoys assaulting women because they are, in his words, more vulnerable than men. Additionally, prosecutors stated that Rice said the women deserved to die because they were gay. I feel like that's hook, line, and sinker right there. You know, big words from a guy in handcuffs yeah. to uh-huh. say they're more vulnerable. Yeah. Right. Well, it's interesting that they convicted him with circumstantial evidence. I mean, obviously this dude's bad news. He philosophically has a distorted view of the world Yeah, no based, one, based on the things that he said, but there was nothing that actually tied him no specifically. No one said that they, they prosecuted him. I mean, then nothing oh, said. Oh, he was just indicted. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. In 1999, the FBI placed an undercover agent with Rice at the Federal Correction Center in Petersburg and taped their conversations. In one, Rice admitted, quote, that he only engaged in two sexual relationships with women, the last occurring in 1991. At that time, he was 31 
And Rice also allegedly stated on the tape, quote, that he was inadequate sexually, that he couldn't find a girlfriend, and that he substituted pornography for sexual relationships. Oh, no. Oh, no. He's just... <laughs> hate, hate to see it. He's like, look, y'all, I'm insecure. Yeah. But also at the same time, he's like, women suck. Yeah. They're vulnerable. Rice was charged with four counts of capital murder, two of which alleged he selected his victims because of their sexual orientation. And because he was charged with a hate crime, his indictment invoked a federal sentencing enhancement, meaning that he could possibly get the death penalty. Which is real tough considering it's circumstantial evidence, like Chase was saying. Though prosecutors spent years building the case against Rice, they lacked forensic evidence to sentence him. Then, in October 2003, a hair found at the crime scene was tested. DNA results indicated that it did not match Rice or the victims. So, there's that. Uh, Hey, could have been a Yeti hair. Could have Mm, been. Way to tie it back. Way to do it. There you go. That's what I'm here for. (laughs) Before October 2003, the only DNA prosecutors had was mitochondrial DNA from the cloth ligatures. This mitochondrial DNA can only determine the person's sex, in this case male, but cannot produce a specific profile. And if you didn't know, the mitochondria is the, the powerhouse, powerhouse of, of the, the cell. cell. Yeah, exactly. Facts. If anybody in high school is listening to that, just, just always know that you'll choose C. Always. Always circle yep, C. Yep. In October, <laughs> um, osmosis is the diffusion of water across the selectively okay. permeable membrane. <laughs> okay, and, here we go. And next week we'll be doing all of the pointless things you learn in high school. Yeah. Yep. In October, however, prosecutors learned that an additional hair had been discovered on the duct tape used to bind Lolly's wrist, which then was subjected to a new type of DNA testing called YSTR, and it showed that there was a very good chance that Rice was not the source of the DNA. I don't know. I mean, mm-hmm. people are just walking through the park so her hair could fall out. That's true. Did they test to see if it was the Golden Retriever's DNA? Mm-hmm. We'll never know. Todd. Yeah, old Todd. <laughs> After that, the case fell apart, and on February 25th, 2004, Judge Moon dismissed the charges against Daryl David Rice, quote, without prejudice, which means that he can still be charged at a later date. It's not a, a double jeopardy type situation. Mm. So if they found more evidence later, they could re-prosecute him. The National Park Service and the FBI jo- joined forces to conduct a nationwide search for the killer, including following up with an estimated 15,000 leads. Several factors make conducting investigations in National Park Services challenging. The first factor is so many people are coming and going from the park each and every day. Again, Mm -hmm. this was Memorial Day weekend. The year that Julie and Lolly were murdered, 1.57 million people visited the park. And that kind of transient environment allows the perpetrator to easily slip through the park gates, get out unnoticed, and... That's there, what there happened. Well, not to mention you said it was 197,000 acres. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty big. But in 2020, the case remains unsolved. Good news is when I was doing my research, I found articles as recent as September of this year, meaning that people are still looking into the case. It's still out there. So hopefully somewhere out there, someone out there knows something and will come forward and we can solve this. Mm-hmm. But also it's probably just Bigfoot. I think it probably Did is. Did they not look into the Bigfoot theory? Yeah. Or aliens, or the or, Russians. N- yeah, always the Russians. You got to check into the Russians. A Russian alien. And that, mm. Bigfoot. And to that, I say, Shenandoah River. That's um, our scary tales episode on Bigfoot. How did you like it, Cody? Honestly, it changed my life. Did? Yeah, I um, I will leave a better man having done this. Yeah, and I think you should come back. You did a great job. Can't I'm glad. Wait. I'm glad you could join. It was a good time. I mean, we did not get off track as much as I thought we would. We. Talked That's it. only because Chase is sitting in there. That's 100 percent true. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Um, what else, if you came back, what would you like to talk about? We'll save it for you. Let's see. I would like to talk about <laughs> what? Murders related to real estate. Ooh, I have a really good one for that. That's good. I have a very good one. A real estate agent that was murdered. She was showing the house, and they and she never came back home. And they went to the house she was showing, dead. I mean, you know that happens a lot. Mm-hmm. It's pretty scary. I mean, I'm not going to get off on a tangent. Well, there was one time that you were going to see an abandoned house, and you're like, hey, it's nearby. You want to go with me? Yeah, it, dude. And we, it was scary. We walk into some creepy situations. Yeah. These abandoned homes, and they're like, let's go check out the crawl space. Yeah, where I'm the like, squatter who wants to kill me is. Yeah. And I've heard some stories of people I know in my office that have like walked in on people like that are in a closet because they didn't think they should be home, and they were just trying to like hide till people left. Oh. Like, imagine finding a human in a closet. Oh, hey, sorry. I'm in here. Like, <laughs> This the is history awkward. of real estate. Oh, Next dumb, dumb, episode dumb. of Scary Tales. Um, you still never say what you wanted to be. I'm going to say you're a Jungle Book type guy. Yes, I love that. Okay. I'll be here. Uh, if you want to look If at- we can play the Phil Collins soundtrack. Absolutely. Sure. You okay. singing it. Yeah, all, all right. of it. If you want to learn more about the podcast, you can check us out at Scary Tales Podcast on Instagram. There we have our link tree. You can click on that. You can get some merch. You have a merch shirt. I do have a merch shirt, and mm-hmm. it's the softest shirt I own. Yeah. Uh, I was wearing it the other day, and Solomon walked up to me, which is Cody's child, and by God's son, and he said, hey, Mommy has that shirt. And I was like, there you go. There you go. You need to get one for him. Start him young. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, thanks, guys, and we'll see you next time. And this is where we say, oh, bye-bye. Oh, bye-bye. Oh, bye-bye.